0: In my case, if I were to go off statistics, I wouldn't have even graduated high school. Only 38% of teen moms graduate high school. Only 2% earn a bachelor's degree before the age of 30. Yes, I'm dad. Say hi. Hi. (laughs) Don't let anyone write your story for you.
1: Hi. I'm Ankita Verma, and you're listening to Gen BIPOC. Gen BIPOC is a podcast where I talk to young people who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color about their lives, dreams, and vulnerabilities. As you just heard, Kathy is a mom. She has a six-year-old son named Aaron. And so I wanted to give you a heads up that you will hear him in the background. Usually, I record these episodes in person, and all of the 10 episodes in the first season were recorded in person. However, since the pandemic, I've been conducting all of these interviews remotely. So, you know, we're all adjusting, we're all doing the best that we can. And also, before we get started with Kathy's episode, I wanted to issue a content warning and let you all know that gang violence and gun violence will be discussed later on in the episode. If you choose to keep listening, I think that Kathy has a pretty remarkable story and I hope that you agree.
0: My name is Kathy Santa Maria Mendez. I am living here in Minnesota. I came to the U.S. when I was two years old. I was born in El Salvador, a small Central American country. I'm also Honduran. And yeah, I came to the US when I was two. My parents came straight to Minnesota, which I still wonder why they chose Minnesota (laughs) out of all the states, especially because they arrived mid-January. So that was obviously a very traumatic, in terms of weather. (laughs) Um, So I've been living in Minnesota my whole life. I I went to the U of M for undergrad. I finished my bachelor's in Chicano Latino studies last year. Um, And I have a six-year-old son. Time flew by so fast and uh, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic so I'm not really able to do much. So it's been a good time to just do other stuff that I feel like I've put off like um, I used to be a songwriter so now I've been getting back into that Um, and also just spending more time with my family because the usual I think most families it's like no one's really there at the same time for a long period of time, like we've been now. But I will be starting law school in the fall at Mitchell Hamlin. So I'm excited and nervous, but mostly excited.
1: <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what led you to want to go to law school and what your process has been like? Yeah, so like I said, I was born in El Salvador. So being an
0: immigrant has been a really big. Part of my journey and has really impacted the different life decisions that I've made. Um, I know, similar to your story, I thought I was going to be a doctor,
1: <laughs> mainly because. Yes, of... <laughs> another one of us.
0: <laughs> yes, I know that's also part of your story. <laughs> mainly, I feel just to, you know, it's kind of a family thing. I feel with a lot of immigrant parents, it's like, oh, the most successful career is being a doctor.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And so that's what I thought I was going to do. And again, like you, I took chemistry and I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. (laughs) And I realized I wanted to be a psychiatrist and mainly because of the mental health component that I saw in my community. But as I got into college and I took different courses in like intro to like criminal law and stuff like that, I realized that a lot of the mental health issues in my community stem back to various legal issues like immigration status and mass incarceration and so I realized that in order to tackle those mental health issues in my community, we needed to dig deeper because it wasn't just enough to get therapy or to get medication. It was about addressing the root cause of different issues. And for immigrants, a lot of us, especially Latino immigrants, we can't access mental health support because we're undocumented and we don't have access to health care. So that's why I was like, hmm, maybe I should become an, an attorney And as an immigrant, also my own immigration attorney had a really big impact in my life. When I was seven, actually, I said I was going to be a lawyer because I wanted to be like him. And somehow I went from that to being a doctor and went right back to what I thought I was going to be (laughs) be at seven years old.
1: That's so interesting, though, because yeah. I feel like at the end of the day, we always knew what we were going to do, but so many different factors mm-hmm. kind of steered us away from that. Because similarly to you, as I've been quarantined at home and going through all of my stuff from childhood, I keep finding all of these political posters and <laughs> diary entries that I wrote that were so... like government policy social justice focused and I thought okay I have always known what I wanted to do and for some reason I thought that I couldn't do it so it's cool to see that you had a similar experience
0: yeah so I I always said you know I want to be like him I want to help people I want to help families thanks to him he he helped my family throughout probably I'd say about nine years Um, So my family was under TPS, also known as temporary protected status, which is a status that is protecting certain Salvadoran immigrants from deportation. So he helped my family through that process, which that status right now is being, it's supposed to end in January. The Trump administration, unfortunately, ended it, despite previous administrations continuing to allow it to renew every 18 months. So we'll see what happens in January to my community. But yeah, so he helped us through that process and he helped us also to gain permanent residency status through a U visa, which is um, a visa that's given to immigrants who are victims of crime. So that experience with my family is what got me interested in criminal law because I saw how immigration law and criminal law really intersect with each other and how it again, it really impacts my community.
1: Speaking of your family being from El Salvador, I feel like there are a lot of people in the States who assume that anyone who says they're from Central America is just from Mexico. Yeah. (laughs) I've gotten people to ask me,
0: oh, El Salvador, where in Mexico is that?
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. That is not good. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe in quarantine, people will start looking at maps. I don't know.
0: Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, uh, if you have nothing to do, please look at maps.
1: <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what your experience has been like growing up in Minnesota being from El Salvador, but also since a young age having to have immigration and attorneys and different legal technicalities be at the forefront of your life in so many ways?
0: Yeah. Growing up, Minnesota's our Latino population is mostly Mexican. So when I was younger, like in elementary school, I would hate to say that I was Salvadoran or Central American because I would get made fun of. People were like, oh, that small country, that poor country, you know, even within um, other Latino children would tell me that. And so there was a point in my life where I would not want to speak about where I was from, or I would say I'm Mexican, or I would just try to avoid the question. So I think it wasn't until I got to high school that I was really comfortable with my identity. And it was, unfortunately, it was due to the fact that when I was in high school was when we saw the crisis at the border with unaccompanied minors crossing, and most of them were from Central America. And so unfortunately, I was like, I need to speak up because my people are dying at the border, (laughs) and I need to be more honest with who I am. So it was in high school where I got that confidence and I was like, I really need to learn about my history and where I'm from. And that's when I started becoming more proud of my Spanish accent because the way I would speak in Spanish, I tried to make it sound more Mexican. But then I was like, why am I doing this? I need to speak based on who I am. So that's when my interest started with learning about my history and Actually, asking my parents why we came to the US. It took me, you know, almost 20 years to ask my parents, why did we come to the US? And I think from a young age, it was frustrating to see how even immigration attorneys didn't really understand the stories of immigrants. Fortunately, my attorney was Latino. He was half Mexican, half Paraguayan. So he was aware, you know, with his own family's history. But I know my other family members who went through other attorneys, they didn't really connect with the attorneys in that sense where they felt like the attorney understood where they were coming from, from a humanitarian perspective. So I was fortunate in that aspect to have someone that sort of represented me.
1: Mm hmm. It's really great to hear you talk about how high school was when you started figuring out who you were and standing up for yourself and your background and learning about your history because I feel like most of the people I know didn't really start to feel that way until after high school. I also know that you were really young when you had your son. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what that was like?
0: Yeah, so I got pregnant actually when I was 14. I was about to turn 15. So I was starting my freshman year of high school I was going to a regular high school and when I found out I was pregnant I switched to an alternative high school which was 14 moms so that helped in terms of not feeling as judged in high school and the school also had it had an on-campus daycare so that that's what really helped me finish high school because if I didn't have that daycare I don't think I would have been able to finish because daycare is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And it's also hard to find high-quality daycare. So I was pretty much... I say I was a parent all of high school because I I believe you become a parent the moment you're pregnant because, you know, your life changes drastically from that moment. So I was pregnant all of freshman year. I had him in May, the last week of May. So it was a week before I was done with freshman year. So I'm thankful that I didn't have to learned to balance school with a newborn because I had the whole summer off. Then I started sophomore year. He was three months old and it was, it was very challenging because I was, I remember the first challenge was with breastfeeding um, because even though we were in the same building, it was hard to get out of class to be breastfeeding him every, you know, every two hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was the first I'd say major sacrifice I had to make was to stop breastfeeding. If, any mom who has breastfed or planned to breastfeed knows that it's very hard to let go of that. And so I I say I've always been a, a very dedicated student throughout school. So I was taking the most challenging courses my high school offered. And again, it was an alternative school, so the options were limited. And so I went to go speak to my counselor because I didn't feel like I was doing enough to feel challenged. I was kind of going to school just to do it. I didn't feel like I was learning anything. And so that's when she was like, maybe you should do PSEO, which is um post-secondary enrollment option. So basically you you go to college to um, whatever college you you want during high school, so it's all free. And so I was like, hmm, maybe maybe I should I should try it. So I I signed up for it for spring semester of my sophomore year and when you're a sophomore the options are pretty limited you can only take like one class I think so I just took one class just to feel it I went to St. Paul College for this and I really enjoyed it it was a very new environment and I felt like I was finally being challenged enough So I was like, hmm, let me keep doing this. So I I went in all full time during my junior year of high school and my senior year of high school, and that that helped me finish two years of college before graduating high school. Two weeks before my high school graduation, I graduated from St. Paul College with my associate in arts degree. So that's how I was able to graduate from college when I was 20 instead of 22.
1: Wow, that's wild. And you are (laughs) how old now?
0: Right now I'm 21. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so when people ask me, when they do the math and they're like, wait, you're only 21 and you just finished college, I'm like, yeah, because I, I did PSEO for two years in high school.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people also don't realize is how much money it saves to start doing PSEO in high school.
0: Oh, yeah thanks to PSEO, I was able to graduate without student debt. So if, yeah, I I recommend everyone do PSEO. I'm pretty biased, but I believe it's a better option than AP courses or the IB program.
1: Yeah, I don't know if all states have programs like that. I know Wisconsin did when I was growing up there, and Mm -hmm. definitely something that's worth looking into, largely just because it saves so much money. Yeah. Education just keeps getting more expensive. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's why I try telling any high schooler that I know to do PSEO. Even if it's just one semester, it'll save you money (laughs) and time.
1: And while you were doing PSEO, was Aaron still able to be watched by the daycare at your high school, or how did that work?
0: Yeah, since I was still technically enrolled at the high school, they allowed me to take a um, to keep him at the daycare, as well as use their study space. So I was still able to be in the building while he was in the daycare.
1: Okay, got it. Can you talk a little bit about what the community was like for you in high school, knowing that you were surrounded by other people who knew exactly what you were going through, who weren't there to be judgmental? Yeah, you know, it was,
0: that's why my experience as a teen mom is very different from most teen moms, because I don't think most states have a school specifically for teen moms. So that's why, you know, I'm very grateful that I, I lived in a city that had that So I made a lot of teen mom friends during my experience, and I still talk to a few of them. And it was just very helpful in terms of having someone my age to talk to or to hang out with who also had a younger child. I have one friend specifically who has, um, so who our sons were born within the same month, Mm -hmm. and we still hang out with each other. So that's nice to have someone who saw my progress and whose child also (laughs) is still friends with my child. So that's why, at least in school, I didn't have a negative experience compared to other moms. But outside of school, it was definitely... You have people telling you, oh, you just ruined your life, or you're not going to succeed in anything because you
1: you became a mom so young. How did that sort of feedback and responses from people affect you? You know... At
0: first, especially when I was pregnant, I I think also because of the pregnancy hormones and I was in a very emotional state, I would really let it get to me and I would cry over things people would tell me, especially when it came from people I looked up to like family members or close family friends. But as I got to a point where I realized I needed to accept my situation and not dwell in it, I used it more as motivation. Yeah, I like the in terms of saying, I'm going to do this because I need to, I want to show people that my story didn't end up the way they, they said it would. Or especially because I also saw how it impacted my parents, you know, because no parent wants their 15 year old to become a parent. And so I also was like, I want my parents to be able to show people that I didn't end up becoming who they said I would, and that I'm not going to allow myself to become another statistic. And so I know that maybe that's not a good way to overall view a situation, because I do believe that you need to do things for yourself, not for other people. But at the moment, that is what helped me get through the situation.
1: You slightly touched on how your family reacted. How have they been now that Erin is almost six, and you've done so many things that you said you would do, graduated college in two years and are now starting law school.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, my parents, it's funny because during my pregnancy, my parents didn't talk to me at all. Like I lived with them and it was a very awkward nine months. And once he was born, it's like they forgot everything that happened. It was so funny. Like they were in the hospital and my mom was actually the first person to see him. 'Cause she was in in labor with me. And it's like they just forgot about everything. They were just so excited. And it was just so funny. But I think over time they've realized that I've I have done what I said I would do. And there's been situations where we've clashed a lot because like I've lived with them all of these years. So it's been hard to find that balance of them not parenting my child, but them also helping me with him. And I guess over time, just my actions have really shown them that I didn't allow the situation to stop me. And now they're more than happy to to watch him for me if I need to do anything or if I need a break, especially because his father hasn't been in the picture at all. So I think they've realized even more that I wasn't going to let this stop me and that a big part of why I need them is to continue through this journey with my son. And I think that's also a big part of the Latino community in general. And I think many other ethnic groups that family is a big part of who we are. Like, I feel like in the U S you know, we're so individualistic, but my parents, and we come from a country where you succeed as a family and so I think they've really tried to keep that even here in the U.S. after so many years that we succeed as a family and that in order to succeed you need your family and we've, we haven't assimilated to that idea of being so individualistic and throughout this time I've learned that it really does take a village to raise a child I think when I was younger, when he was just born, I wanted to do everything on my own, mainly to prove that I could do it. But I started to accept that it does take a village to raise a child, and asking for help is okay. You know, if you're tired, if you don't know what to do, it's okay to ask for help when it comes to your child. And it's taken me a couple of years to accept that it's okay to ask help. And that just because I ask for help doesn't mean that I'm a bad mom.
1: So you also mentioned that during this time that you've been quarantined, you've been talking to your parents more about why they came to the States and learning a little bit more about their backgrounds. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to the other studying that you've been doing about your background that you did in college? Yeah, so I'd say
0: it was Again, during high school, where I was like, I want to learn more about who I am. And I guess that was the initial moment that I asked, really, why did we come? Because growing up, it was like, oh, we came for a better future, you know, pretty vague, like, oh, for a better future, for a better life, there were better opportunities here. But I was like, there's more to the story, especially as I kept learning about Salvadoran history. And so I guess the main reason my parents came to the U.S. was because there was a lot of just different damages to the country. So El Salvador went through a civil war in the 80s. It lasted from 1980 to 1992. And that left the country devastated in different aspects from economic to social in general. And then during the 90s, there were different natural disasters that caused even more damage to the country. So those different factors contributed to my family coming to the United States. And I think it was mainly the natural disasters because my dad was an agricultural worker. And there was a hurricane in 1998 that really damaged crops. And so my dad was basically left without work for years. So my my parents went to the consulate to apply for a tourist visa. And so that also debunks the idea that we all crossed the border. Because my parents didn't cross the border, we actually entered through the tourist visa. We were only supposed to stay for six months, but here we are 20 years later. <laughs> and that whole idea got me interested in learning more about The civil war and the natural disasters and how all of that contributed to the current crisis we see today and it really connects to the crisis we're seeing at the border because most people coming in right now through the border are from central america and so that inspired me to do my thesis project on the salvadoran migration experience Because I I did my bachelor's degree in Chicano Latino studies and that's also something I wanna touch on. My journey through college was also similar to high school where I felt left out, like I was invisible, like my community was invisible, because even though I did Latino studies, it was mostly Mexican history. And so when I chose my major and I started taking the classes, I was like, Where's my history? You know, where's my where's my people? And there was only one class I took where we really went in depth on Central American history. And it still bothers me to this day how
1: limited the department is in terms of Latino history. That really resonates with me because I remember my first year of high school, everyone had to take world history when it really should have been called European history because we only Uh, covered Europe. And then I think in one week covered China and India. And that was it it Uh and while we were covering that all the other kids in the class made fun of Indian culture and Bollywood and how people dressed and danced so yeah not great but could you talk a little bit about some of the things that you learned when you did start learning about your history especially through the one class but then the research you did Uh on your own
0: yeah so I wanted to learn from the beginning so I was like okay when was our independence 1854 all right what happened before then? So I really went in depth on our indigenous communities and because I think most people think it's like you're either Mayan or Aztec, which is like what we're taught in school. Although only indigenous people in South and Central America were either Aztec or Indian or Inca. And so I was like, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Why would it just be three (laughs) groups? So I learned that El Salvador actually had about four to five different indigenous groups. And so I was like, hmm, what happened? (laughs) Because now, you know, it's very European centric. And then that's when I I moved forward with history. And I learned about what happened through colonization and how there's only like now there's probably like 10 people who speak the indigenous language. I was like, how did we get from thousands of indigenous people to only really 10 that can speak a language. And then I started learning more about how Europeans kept invading my country and how the government was set up the way it is today. And I think a big part of Salvadoran history is the civil war because the civil war drastically changed so many things. The first Salvadoran immigrants who arrived in the U.S. came from the civil war. So they arrived in the 80s and I think right now El Salvador is really known for its violence unfortunately because of the gangs that exist in our country and I think it's important to point out that those gangs actually started here in the United States and they were actually immigrants who were deported back to El Salvador. I like to point that out to people all the time because I think Right now, especially with this administration, there's this narrative that, oh, only bad people are coming from El Salvador or like, oh, we're all bad people or criminals or whatever. But it's important to know that the people that are viewed as criminals were actually people who were deported and who actually came through the U.S. prison system. So a lot of my community's trauma started here in the United States, more
1: specifically in the prison system. Can you talk a little bit more about trauma and how that has manifested from the United States back to El Salvador? Yeah, so like I was saying, most immigrants were deported back to El Salvador
0: after so much trauma here in the prison system and discrimination that they faced. So the gangs were initially started in the United States to sort of create this community against the discrimination that they were facing when they arrived here. And it's obviously difficult, you know, being deported and then you go back to a country that just ended a civil war. You know, you're going to have limited opportunities. And if you were in a gang for years, that's probably the first place you're going to go to in order to survive. Because I think it's important to view this issue with compassion and accountability. So that's the way I view any sort of issue we're facing and you know from a social justice perspective of compassion and accountability and so you have people that were deported back to a country that is in wrecks so they're they're going to turn back to what they know in order to survive that's where the violence has started in El Salvador and it's it's been hard to stop it because you know it's, it's that generational trauma where you have that constant cycle of poverty violence incarceration And I've seen how it's impacted also the people outside of the gangs, like my family, for example. I think the best example I can give is tattoos, because in El Salvador, if you have a tattoo, you're a gang member. So here in the United States, I got a tattoo and (laughs) my parents freaked out because they were like, only gang members have tattoos. And no, anyone that has a tattoo is a gang member. And, you know, it's those little things that, at the time, I was like, I would get angry about. Now I'm like, okay, I see how it's those little things that remind my parents of the trauma that they faced and that my family continues to face. And also with my dad, for example, um, he's, he's pretty young. He was born in 81, 1981. So his whole childhood was a war. He still tells me stories of how they would have to hide under the kitchen table because shots were being fired or how soldiers would show up to hit their house and they had to give them food. Otherwise, they were in danger of getting shot. You know, those little things that I'm like, like, that's not okay, you know? And I really see how he didn't enjoy his childhood and just how those things with different Salvadoran
1: immigrants continue to impact their lives. To hear you talk about your dad's experiences growing up there, it's so infuriating to me to think about the people who just want immigrants to stay, you know, quote, wherever they came from, when no one leaves the place where they grew up because they want to. So can you talk a little bit about how you've reacted to the country's immigration policies and the way that people might talk about immigrants?
0: Let's see. So... When the Trump administration started, there was a lot of rhetoric against immigrants. At the time, it was against Mexico specifically, right? As he got further into his administration, he started attacking countries that were being protected by TPS, the program I had mentioned earlier. And more specifically, there was a point, I believe it was like two years ago, he called El Salvador a shithole country. That was the exact word he used. And I think that was the moment where I realized that people don't know our story. Because like you said, you're not just going to leave your country just because you feel like it. And so that's what pushed me even more to want to be an attorney. Because right now I feel very powerless because I don't, I haven't been admitted to the bar so I can't practice law. (laughs) And I've been seeing so much need to advocate for the community and really get this country to understand where we're coming from. And a big part of the reason the war lasted for 12 years was because the United States funded so much of it. So it started... It was during the Reagan administration. And if you know anything about the Reagan administration, you know that their fear was the spread of communism. And that is why the United States intervened in our war because they were afraid that if they didn't intervene, communism was going to spread in El Salvador. And so I think that's also a big part that many people don't know is that the United States played a big role in the destruction of my country and of many countries, not just El Salvador. We've seen it in Nicaragua, in Guatemala. And so I think a big part of of it just, it has been trying to educate people. And that is why I chose the project that I chose for my thesis project in college. And fortunately my professor was allowed me to present it at a couple of conferences. Which I think really, really helped with getting people to think about it. It was scary because I, I, I hate speaking in public, but I was like, if it's not me, who is going to do it?
1: <laughs> Are there any other misconceptions about El Salvador that you have addressed in your research and in your life that you think it's important for people to know?
0: Biggest one that we mentioned is that we're all Mexicans. That is not true. Also, growing up, I would, the violence was always pointed out, like, oh, you're part of the MS-13 or, oh, your family's violent or whatever. That's not true. Also, our country is not, it's not a horrible place. You know, just because it has a lot of poverty doesn't mean it's a horrible country. It's beautiful. I went last year for the first time in almost 20 years. And, you know, if it wasn't so violent, I would love to live there. It's a beautiful country. The beaches are amazing. It's 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 very beautiful.
1: <laughs> what was it like to visit?
0: You know when I when you're on the airplane and they're like, you know, they announce your destination or whatever, I started crying because I I just couldn't believe it. I didn't think I would ever be able to come back. And I also felt a lot of cultural shock. I think that was my first time experiencing cultural shock, so it helped me be more sympathetic towards my parents of their experience here in the United States. Everything is just so different there. Even
1: though I was born
0: there, people know that I'm not from there, you know, just in the way that I dress or the way that I speak or, you know, people just know you're not from there. And so it felt very, very, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It just felt so weird. I was so excited, but nervous and felt weird and there was a time when we went to a beach and it was like a tourist destination so there were a lot of people from the United States and weirdly enough I I was like I feel like I'm more at home now with all these people speaking English to me. It was just nice to see everything and we went to like the Mayan temples and like all these different Indigenous sites that were created before colonization, I felt more connected to that because I was like, you know, this is who we were before this mess happened of colonization. And I, we also went to Honduras because, like I said, my mom's Honduran. And that was another, you know, just connecting with my family and really knowing who they were because I talked to them like through video chat, but that's not the same as in person.
1: And was it your parents' first time going back in 20 years as well?
0: Yeah, it was. I think for my dad, it was more impactful because on my mom's side, my grandma and my aunt have a tourist visa, so they come, like, every two to three years. So my mom, like, was used to seeing them. But my dad hadn't seen anyone in almost 20 no. years. And I've never, oh my God, I've never seen my dad cry. And that was the first time we saw him You're cry. Clear. For him, it was... Definitely super impactful.
1: I'm glad to hear that you'll be able to take these stories and your experiences and channel it into some positive work as an attorney for your community. And especially considering the fact that you're someone who has been advocating for so many people first the stories of your parents and overall defending why immigrants especially from El Salvador come to the United States in the first place to standing up for yourself as a teen mom to now also advocating for your son do you ever get tired
0: (laughs) yeah you know I mean I think like most of us we wish we had a a world of equity and it is tiring (laughs) But it's really, I think it really helps to see what intersectionality actually means. Because, you know, I think that that's a term that's thrown around a lot. But I think that someone like Aaron really shows us what that means. Because there's so many different layers to his story and, you know, to other people. You know, and also Aaron, he, he's autistic, which is, I think, also a big part of my story now. So I got his diagnosis last summer. And it's something I had been suspecting since he was like three years old. But it was just very hard to get him tested because there were like, oh, well, he's bilingual. So maybe that's why his speech is delayed. But last summer, I finally got him tested and he he was on he's on the spectrum. And that's helped me just see more of the different identities that people hold, because You know, Aaron, he's going to be a Latino. He's going to be the son of a teen mom. And he's also autistic. And it gets tiring, but it really pushes me more to, you know, in the future as an attorney, that I need to look at all the angles of someone's story. Not just, you know, oh, what country are you from? Or what do you look like? But all of these different struggles that they've faced.
1: Do you have any advice or final words you'd want to share with people who might have experiences adjacent to yours?
0: Uh you know, it's there's so much advice I would want to give. And this is going to sound like very cheesy or whatever, but just don't give up. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I know that a lot of people say that and like it's easier said than done, but just go for what you want to go for. There's no reason at all that you should listen to other people trying to dictate your future. I remember when I was in high school, actually, I, when I thought I was going to be a doctor, I, I told the school nurse and she was like, "Hmm, maybe you should be a nurse. That's an easier route. And <laughs> that conversation, I've kept it very close as just an example of someone trying to bring me down and not letting it happen. And so just don't give up. Use your story. I think that your story is the most powerful tool that you have because, you know, there are all these statistics and all of these different graphs trying to tell our story for us, but that's not who you should allow yourself to be. In my case, if I were to go off statistics, I wouldn't have even graduated high school. Only 38% of teen moms graduate high school. Only 2% earn a bachelor's degree before the age of 30. And just don't let anyone write your story for you. Because you, you have the power to write your own story. And it's possible.
1: You just heard several of the ways in which Kathy has beaten the odds, but one of the things that she didn't mention is that she has also worked as an organizer for Keith Ellison's campaign, and that's actually where the two of us met. And having been in political spaces, there are very, very few people who have given birth in political organizing, especially as young as Kathy was at the time. I haven't known Kathy for very long, but I know that she's also just getting started. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you learned something. And I also wanted to add that there's another way for you to contact me now. We have an email address and it's jenbipocpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. If you're a fan of Gen B I BIPOC, subscribe to us on your podcast app. Share this episode with your friends and family, and give us a rating or leave a review for future listeners. And if you or someone you know wants to share their story on this podcast, don't hesitate to reach out. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at GenBiPocPod, and visit GenBiPocPod.com to stream more episodes and provide feedback. We'd love to hear from you.